I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Lee Constantino. And yes, I'm paranoid. But am I paranoid enough here in the Great Concavity? Welcome to this is episode twenty five. Kind of, kind of a special milestone. It feels like, hey Matt. That's it's nice. Yeah, Although we nice. said that at twenty two, so let's not be too self congratulatory. <laughs> I guess <laughs> every every new episode is special. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> so we are joined by a very special guest, our friend Lee Constantino, who is the assistant professor in the Department of English at the University of, University of Maryland College Park. And Lee teaches uh, areas like 20th century, 21st century American fiction, postmodernist art and theory, comics, graphic novels, science fiction, pop culture, and lots of other cool stuff. So, Lee, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Right on. Lee, you will probably be familiar to many of our listeners as, I would say, one of the most hard-hitting Wallace scholars on the scene today. Uh, you have... You were the co-editor on The Legacy of David Foster Wallace, which was a very formative book for me when I was starting to get into you know, Wallace scholarship stuff. Uh, particularly your essay in there, No Bull, Wallace and Post-Ironic Belief, was you know, a really important starting point for my own thesis uh, recently. And uh, so thank you for, for your contributions there. Oh, thank you for reading it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Uh, many others, too. You've published on Boundary 2 and Salon recently, uh, an, an article about how to get beyond irony, David Foster Wallace, Dave Eggers, and a new generation of believers. Um, and most recently, which we're probably going to spend most of tonight talking about, is a monograph entitled Cool Characters, Irony, and American Fiction, which came out last year and is put out by Harvard University Press. So congratulations on that, that big release. Thanks. Thanks. It took about 10 years to write that. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> wow. That's, that's many. I really it's, liked your, uh, yeah. your, um, your acknowledgement section. It seems like you're deeply indebted to, in, to your wife for her patience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she was, uh, there was, a, actually a review of it, of the book, like, uh, like a, a three sentence review of the book in Stanford magazine. Cause like Harvard sent out review copies to all the right. you know, possible uh, venues that might be interested in it, in it. And like two out of the three sentences of the review were about the acknowledgements. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Really and, funny. and Matt Booker gets a, a thank too there. So oh, yeah. Lee and I Matt's go way back. Booker. Lee and I go way back. Um, yeah. And, and Lee, you, you just alluded to it there that this book took you a while to compile but the structure of it is pretty simple. There's only four chapters in the book. Can can you yeah. ta- can you talk a little bit about that decision to to make these kind of broad, uh, overarching chapters and really dig into them? Sure. I mean, yeah. um, I mean, well, one thing I'll say is that the uh, the fact that there are four chapters is. Uh, you know, in in a way, a little deceiving because <laughs> each of the chapters is like double length. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Each, each of the chapters, for the most, well, not not everyone, but like most of the chapters, each like focus on like two big writers. Uh, yes. And so, uh, you know, the, the the chapters end up becoming very long as a result. Um, but like the b- basic organization of the book is around uh, different. 
uh, character types. Mm-hmm. So there's like a chapter on like the hipster. Uh, and in that chapter, I talk about Ralph Ellison and Thomas Pynchon. And then there, there's a chapter on punk. And, and in that chapter, I talk about William S. Burroughs and, and Kathy Acker. Uh, and then the one that's about Wallace uh, is a chapter on uh, like a, a character type I call uh, the believer. Uh, and like half of that's about Wallace. And then uh, the other half of it is it's kind of about Dave Eggers. Dave Eggers, yeah. But it's also kind of about like McSweeney's as an institution mm. that I sort of argue is a kind of uh, an heir to some of what Wallace was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's kind of like you know, and then the, there there is like a, the final chapter is on cool hunting. Mm-hmm. We can talk about what cool hunting is if if you're interested in <laughs> in that. Uh, I mean, and I know, uh, I mean, I don't know, Matt. Yeah. You must you must see cool hunters in in Austin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah no, you I, must. Well, I think it ties back to that <laughs> chapter too about hipsterism too, and that yeah. Um, you know, at least you've got hipster as critic, but the idea of the hipster in general seems pretty closely related to the cool hunter to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe I'm totally wrong about that. You could set me straight. <laughs> I know not. I mean, yeah. I no need no, yeah. no need to set you straight. That's exactly right. Um, uh, but the, yeah, I mean, the, you deal a lot with uh, Jennifer Egan in there, and that yeah. that idea you know, about how TV has influenced a lot of the narrative writing of, you know, the early 21st century. Um, I'm very curious about that now because it seems one of those things, you know, Wallace dealt with too about it's hard to write about because it often doesn't age well, Mm. you know. Like writing about about TV. Yeah, or or brands and pop culture in general. And and so, you know, I wanted to ask you about that because clearly it's something that is a marker of cool. Like if you can drop the latest lingo, like that is probably the most, I don't know, in your face marker of being cool or not. Like if you can just even keep up with the right thing, like put on this act, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard even to like write about these things, uh, in, in fiction. Uh, so like one of the books that I, I was very, you know, sort of, I really love and, and that I wrote about in that chapter was uh, a book by a novel by William Gibson called pattern recognition. Right. Uh, and, and so much of that novel, I mean, part of what was exciting about that novel, say reading it in like 2003, 2004, when I read it was, uh, the fact that it was like literally set in like 2002, like immediately <laughs> after the 9/11 attacks, right? Oh, yeah. uh, and uh, part of what that novel does really well is it, it sort of it, it, it uses you know very up to date language, right? Like it, to to read like uh, you know a character using like Google as a verb, mm-hmm. like I Google something, right? Like uh, was it it was very striking uh, reading it at the time and. You read it now and, and you kind of, you know, if, if you were to read it now and you had no sense of what it was like to be sort of aware and sort of alive at that moment, then uh, like a lot of the, the energy and the force of that book kind of might get lost, I think. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that there are some traditional, you know, like DeLillo tries to do that in some ways. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, the, I remember like when some Tao Lin books came out. And I felt like, oh, wow, this is the first time you ever see someone using like a G chat, you know, like a Gmail chat conversation as like part of the text, you know, or, 
you know, it could fit in very well with like you walk down the street in Brooklyn and you see these certain shops. But then when you stand back and you see like, well, that stuff, you know, unless you have some greater purpose, it really that's not enough. You know, <laughs> you know, like yeah, just yeah. just throwing out these cultural markers is so superficial. Mm. Um, and yeah. you know, you know, Wallace had this big debate about like, uh, you know, you look around and that's this sort of culture that you're swimming in. Uh, how can you not write about it? But yeah. on the, but on the other hand, it's uh, you know the, I think there's something to that prof- like professor saying, and eh, maybe don't, <laughs> you know, you know, or try to find something that's you know where that that is an add-on, but that's not going to be the substance of what you're writing about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, I think it was a right a paradox for for Wallace, right? Like he he didn't want to do what he right he saw like someone like like uh Brett Easton Ellis doing, right? right? Like uh where or or, or other right. writers who are, you know, lost in the mists of time, you know, who <laughs> might, might use like, you know, like a, a, a certain brand name on a t shirt as a stand in for some fact mm-hmm. you're supposed to know about a character, right? Yeah. And then I also think that that like right, like Wallace also recognized you couldn't like there was there was something empty about like a certain kind of realism that like systematically avoided talking about those things right? Uh, as well. And I actually think like Talin's a pretty interesting writer. I I'm, have mixed feelings about him and I've, I've taught some of his fiction. I've, I've taught, for example, uh, shoplifting from American apparel in, in some mm-hmm. of my classes. And uh, you know, my, my, my students will just, fight viciously about Talin. Like <laughs> half of them will just absolutely hate it. They'll think, you know, say this this guy, you know, just sort of is barfing the stuff out. You know, he's just oh, cutting yeah. and pasting his, you know, G chat transcripts right. into a book. And then other people will feel totally connected to it. Yeah, and that's kind of what, you know, Andy Warhol has this novel that's called A, whereas mm-hmm. he, he literally just left a tape recorder on, like, in his apartment for, like, a week, and then paid someone to transcribe it, and then called it a novel. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and and that's kind of, but that was, like, there's a lot of people who love that. It's very difficult for me to read, so, I mean, I have mixed feelings about that as, um, you know, being like an old man, like I feel like I'm very <laughs> old and yeah, very out of it in some ways. And I'm kind of resentful of that, but you know, and, and I felt that way somewhat with the Dave Eggers thing. And, you know, I feel, I want to ask you about that, that movement and like, what was your first impressions? Like when McSweeney's came out or, you know, heartbreaking work of staggering genius came out not long after, Infinite Jest, like only four years after Infinite Jest, mm-hmm. I think. Like, what, what yeah. was your impression when, when like Eggers sort of became a factor just in the contemporary literature scene? Um, I mean, he, here I should like maybe give some background about how I came to write about Wallace in the first place. Yeah, uh, please do. Yeah, <laughs> just because. So uh, I, I after I graduated from college in two thousand. And I went out to the Bay Area and worked as a technical writer for a couple of years before I ended up going to grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I stayed, you know, I, I went to Stanford for grad school, so I stayed in the Bay Area. But, you know, I became aware of Eggers through uh, one, of, uh, one of my coworkers had been a colleague of his 
at Might Magazine. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, and so I'd, I'd heard a lot about Might Magazine and the kind of work they did there. And then I was kind of vaguely aware that uh, his memoir had become like this huge phenomenon. Hmm. Um, and then a couple of years later, they opened the, uh, the tutoring centers. So the 826 Valencia Tutoring Center right. uh, was open, opened in San Francisco. Uh, and I, I like volunteered there uh, oh, cool. for a little while, like not very long. You know, I'd sort of, you know, it, it, it became clear that like, you know, I, it sort of wasn't fitting into my schedule <laughs> and it was like, I was, I was in the, on the peninsula and they were up in San Francisco. So yeah. that was a long drive actually. Were um, you working like the pirate store or were you tutoring? Well, the, 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 the tutoring center in the back, um, yeah, it was the tutoring center in the back, but then. Uh, they like sent me out to a school one day, for example. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't like I was uh, in the store itself. Right. Uh, but um, so anyway, so I was kind of aware of Eggers. Not, I mean, like I, I, it took me a while to actually read the memoir, but like I, I was more aware of him as a kind of institution builder. Right. And uh, he seemed to me as a graduate student when I finally got to grad school, like representative of a certain like ethos, uh, like kind of indie ethos that was sort of in the air. Like, so I associated him with um, like I'm someone like Jonathan Safran Four or yeah, yeah. like, you know, Miranda July or Wes Anderson. Mm -hmm. uh, like a lot of these artists seem to be kind of doing something similar. Um, and, and they all, to, to, or to greater or lesser degrees, many of them seem to have some kind of debt that they were paying to like Wallace. Mm. Uh, and so like that, that was just kind of the, the way I got into Eggers. I was sort of interested in like, why is this popular now? Why, why, you know, is this like aesthetic taking off? Uh, and I think it, it maybe is like less, it seems like less urgent than it might've uh, back then. There are like new kind of hip writers or interesting writers who, who've sort of, supplanted Eggers and I, I don't feel like he has the same cachet he used to, but yeah. uh, that's kind of where I was coming from when I, when I started working on it. Yeah. Hmm. That, that's interesting. Cause I was on a complete opposite end of that. And I remember being in New York when that book came out and you know, it actually came out um, like right before I, I associate it more with the corrections than infinite jest, I think. Oh, interesting. And, and that the corrections, you know, was such a publishing sensation. And so was Eggers. Like they spent a lot of money and had this huge Wallace blurb on the back of the hardcover. And I remember just thinking like, wow, this is, this is something like buzzworthy, but there would be like the buzz that would come and go for all kinds of things. And you didn't know what was real until like a couple months later, you know, and yeah. and right around that time, he he formed the book publishing part of McSweeney's in two thousand and one, um, and so a lot of this to me is tied up with like the nine eleven stuff. You know, you mentioned that uh, early yeah. on, and I, you know, I I remember being in New York and going to like the first book party they had for McSweeney's, and like it definitely felt like a community, you know, for a time and place that was very unique. And, you know, well, another thing I wanted to get your uh, opinion on is how that, you know, aged with irony because yeah. it, it, it seems like it has aged out in some ways. Like the, the Believer, McSweeney's all exist still, but 
you know, their archive is in the ransom center. Like they're sort of, right. they're sort of like wrapped things up and, you know, Eggers, I don't know, maybe he's mostly just a solo writer now, doesn't even publish his own stuff. Like what, what is the status you think of that sort of the believer as a movement from Eggers? I don't think it's coherent in the same way that it might've been like right at the beginning. I think like as institutions get bigger, as they publish more and more people, uh, like the diversity of what they publish just increases. Um, and, and the sense that like, uh, you know, you know, like the, the fact that people were like very energized and also like scandalized by like the inaugural essay that like Heidi Julevitz wrote. It's about snark. Uh, it's about snark. About snark. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that seems like, uh, that, that seems like far away to me now, you know, like that. <laughs> it <laughs> is. Like people yeah. still, yeah, write about snark and like Dave Denby wrote this book about snark and uh, every now and then like the New York Times will publish like some essay about how we're too ironic uh, or Salon will do that. Mm-hmm. But it feels like, it feels like they're recycling something that used to feel like really urgent and, and important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know that it feels... Uh, as urgent and important in the same, or, or maybe it's like, it's not kind of like, I don't think it's where the energy of like literary culture is right now. I, I think now people are much more excited about uh, kind of auto fiction. Uh, they're, they're excited about like, so, so for example, I, I taught, um, I taught a graduate class this last semester. Uh, it was called like 21st century fiction and I ended up teaching it around, on the one hand, like one big strand of it was like all this autofiction stuff. So, Knausgaard like, and Knausgaard. Well, I didn't do Knausgaard because we didn't have enough time. But Ferrante uh, and Ferrante. Yeah, it was like, no. it was like Chris Krause's I Love yeah. Dick, yeah. Uh, 1004, hmm. Sheila Hetty. Uh, and then the other big thread was like apocalyptic fiction, right? Like we're, you know, like a lot of really uh, like large works of fiction uh, – Left Behind See, series was that in there? You know, yeah, I, I, it's I, in your book. <laughs> it is in my book, yeah, <laughs> which I love. Also, is like the framing reference for the Believer chapter. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that in a bit. <laughs> well, and you yeah. yourself have written a pop, pop apocalypse, so we we right. should say you, you yourself have written a dystopian apocalyptic fiction. Um, and it seems more and more relevant in general. Anyone who's written a po- like apocalyptic fiction <laughs> um, politically, and you know, in the beginning of the book, I remember you did talk a little bit about the sort of political use of irony. And I mean, for me right now, like it's Janu- late January 2017. Very difficult to think about anything except for that. Um, and and I wanted to ask you in general because you say something about like, um, you know, what is the political significance of irony, and you know, how has your view of it changed since you wrote the book? Um. So the the kind of debate about uh, irony that like uh, Wallace inaugurates and that like this discussion around snark. Mm-hmm. Uh, furthered uh feels less urgent to me in a certain way um but uh, at the same time like there's something about the kind of satirical world of reality tv that is totally enmeshed with our current political moment 
So uh, someone like Trump <laughs> because is of the this kind of well, <laughs> because of the yeah. Apprentice, and because you know, I, I always, you know, you know, before Trump became the nominee, I always took him very seriously because I, I felt like he had, like, in fact, uh, the one relevant skill. Uh, that was needed during the primary, which was that he had had 15 years of experience, like uh, improvising on The Apprentice. Like, so like Trump, like actually had a particularly has a particularly useful skill in our current political climate. And he like just destroyed all those other 17 like Republican candidates. And so uh, when you sort of think about Trump as a cultural figure, his his peak, his height was you know, he is, you know, like he could be a character out of, I think he does, he doesn't he appear in American Psycho or doesn't, isn't he kind of alluded to, isn't he, you know, isn't he Bateman's like hero? Uh, I think he's mentioned by name. I think he's mentioned by name. Yeah. So, so it's sort of like, you know, that kind of, uh, toxic, uh, I don't know, like, I mean, you get both sides of it, right? On the one hand, Trump is this kind of uh, or like yuppie figure. And then on the other hand, uh, Spy Magazine, right, like uh, was the magazine that famously uh, called him a short, yeah, yeah. A short-fingered vulgarian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> vulgarian? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's good. And it's like, so it's like, you know, satire seems perhaps – more relevant than it did. I, right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like you mentioned that that kind of Socratic idea of irony as as a sort of progressive political force, and that seems to be you know pretty on point right now with what's happening. Yeah, but it's been cold comfort. I mean, in a lot of ways, I yeah. felt like it hasn't really been as necessary. Whenever you feel like an urgency, you know, maybe there's something where artists have time, you know, with like. Maybe with Trump's obsession with SNL, you know, in a way, there, there's a way like, oh, it's being effective in some ways. But in the, in the other ways, at least literarily, it seems to me that, you know, it hasn't had much of an impact besides giving voice to some other voices that normally wouldn't have. Um, like, I, I mean, politically, you've got Ralph Ellison in the book. Um, you know, you've got some other people who... Mm-hmm they became prominent because of a certain like political time and climate. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I think that that's true in our time where, you know, the president is talking about, you know, at least last year was talking about Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, you know, and, and certain writers who, you know, at least writers in general who are writing books were part of the cultural conversation. And I feel like that is being, at least right now being kind of squeezed out of the conversation. Like there's just not enough oxygen Mm. and I, you know, maybe I, did we just lose Lee? What what happened? No, I'm still here. I'm still here. I just heard Skype. I fucking hate Skype. Um, (laughs) uh, It's working great on my uh, end. All right. All right. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, No, I I blame my own provider for this every time, but, um, I don't know where I was going with that, but beyond to just say, like, it's very difficult, I think, to to even do what we're doing right now, which is, like, talk about something beyond, like, the urgency of, 
you know, politics. And I, I hate that in some ways because I'm, I'm yeah. not, I don't feel like inherently that's literature's job, you know, but you're, I mean, I'm very curious in your point of view on this because you're a literature professor and like, how do you view your job in relation to like the greater struggle of like America and shit? <laughs> and that's, that's a good good question um okay uh well he, he here's a story i don't know what the the what the kind of the lesson of the story is but um uh, i'm uh teaching a kind of an experimental creative writing class this semester that's focused specifically on uh writing science fiction short stories cool and uh the idea is that like all the students uh are gonna like do research in some area and uh, they will like sort of like master some technical area, like, you know, like artificial intelligence or, uh, you know, global, you know, climate change or mm -hmm. uh, automation. And then they'll try to write like a really interesting story that, that sort of thinks about one of those issues. Uh, so we, we just had our first meeting and I always do these kind of icebreakers at the beginning of a class. And, I was like, okay, well, you know, let's let's talk about, you know, the near future. Are you uh, optimistic or pessimistic about the near future? And I would say like 80% of the people were uh, pessimistic about the near future. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> sure. uh, and, and, you know, a lot of it, you know, some of it had to do with, I think, the r recent political developments. Uh, other people were pessimistic, you know, because of fears about, you know, Climate change, understandably, other people were afraid uh, for, you know, because of, you know, things having to do with, I don't know, killer AIs and robots. I mean, like, so, so, so the, the kind of the, 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 the list of things we, we can be afraid of is, is like very long. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I guess for me, like, the excitement of the classes is, is like, well, so what are you going to do with your fear, right? Like, you, you have this fear, you have this anxiety, How do you, you have this it? sort of negative, you know, affect. Mm. And then, you know, how you turn this into a story that isn't just saying like, I'm afraid, right? Like, how do you turn this into something that like gives, gives the reader some kind of like new perspective or new insight into like what could happen or how to think about what is happening or uh, maybe uh, reframing uh, a problem so that it might look like very different if seen from another angle. Um, so I don't know, like, I don't know that there's, I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but I, I feel like there's, you know, like, I, no, I, no, I, that's, I, I mean, that's yeah. not, that's not provoking to me because at least, you know, if you're somewhat objective about it, you think, okay, we're not living through D-Day here. We're not living through, uh, you know, world war. And you look at the type of literature that was produced or art, or Guernica and, you know, the type of people who were able to transmute their feelings of, of political dissonance into art. I, I mean, it's huge. In the, but I also don't feel like they felt like it was an opportunity. I think it was like a necessity. Um, yeah. And, I, I, you know, I guess for me it's still something like I think a lot about the people who wrote like Holocaust memoirs. And, you know, they're super valuable pieces of literature, uh, Primo Levi, Elie Wiesel, and yet I don't feel like um, the Holocaust was necessary to produce those. Do you know what I mean? Like, there, it shouldn't be like this 
either or situation. I mean, that's an extreme position right now, but like that's mm. where my mind is at. Is like we're we're yeah. leading up to some really authoritarian shit right now that mm. I, I I have never lived through. So I'm curious to see like how art responds like at each turn of events, mm. and it's universities are a critical part of that. I, I know. I, I I think there's a there there are different ways of thinking about it. Like uh, that, and obviously, uh, you know, if if you don't want to live through uh, the rise of an authoritarian regime, uh, you you would rather you know be producing art at a time where uh, you think you know like yeah. I mean this 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 was in, this was kind of like this characterized to some degree. I think the situation Wallace found himself in, in say the late eighties and the early nineties, uh, there was in fact not that sense of, uh, pending calamity. Uh, I think, I think Wallace saw American culture and American life as like deeply pathological, but it wasn't because there was a kind of an authoritarian leader uh, on the horizon, right? Like, I don't think, you know, say what you will about George H.W. Bush. I don't think that was Wallace's worry about him. Um, so you don't, you know, you don't, you don't want to live, you don't want to live during these dark times, right? Like you don't, you don't want to be worried about people who are like being detained at airports and, Mm -hmm. uh, who are, you know, like, you know, getting thrown, you know, with new fervor into Guantanamo and who are being like bombed with, increased excitement and urgency, but, you know, by the new administration. But, uh, at the same time, you know, like you don't get to, you know, you don't get to pick the era that you live in. Right. So if you're an artist or if you're a journalist or if you're a writer or if you're a professor, there's, uh, you know, to say there's an opportunity makes it sound maybe like too careerist, but, uh, Hmm. you know, like there's a necessity to do something. Uh, there's like, there's something you can do that can contribute to this collective project of, uh, fighting existing power structures, uh, and trying to make the world a better place. And I, I, for me, like, you know, I, I felt very demoralized after the election, but I, I actually felt also very energized by the, the women's march, Mm -hmm. uh, which was like about a week ago, um, and like the lesson, I mean, it wasn't like I didn't know this intellectually, but like to be in a crowd of people who, you know, all feel the same way that you do. Mm-hmm. And they're all asking the same question, which is like, what can I do? Uh, is actually, you know, it, it increased my morale, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I didn't mean to like hijack the, the conversation about your book. No, but, no. But to me, it's so much, <laughs> I mean, it just all goes together. And, uh, you know, I, I also feel like a lot of the failure of contemporary society or the 24-hour news cycle is that we quickly lose sight of even our recent past, much less our, you know, history of the past hundred years. And I, I think you deal with that pretty well in the book and that you get into kind of the history of the hipster and the hip, the idea of irony in a way I haven't read before. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of want to bring it back to that, if you don't mind, because this um, essay you mentioned about Anatole Briard, Briard uh, 
and, you know, he has this book that I really love called Kafka Was the Rage. Yeah. But I'd never heard of this this essay about the hipster. And, you know, can you set that up in context? Because it's like the beginning of World War II, right? Like 1939 or something. He's writing about this. Well, this is uh, this is later. This is in okay. Uh, I believe this was published in forty eight in in nineteen forty eight in Partisan Review. Okay, um, and he, uh, I mean, he was you know an intellectual uh, and and writer uh, living in 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 Greenwich Village, and he was uh, commissioned by one of the editors uh, of Partisan Review to uh, write an essay on on hipster culture. Uh, for the for the magazine, uh, and it was one of the early like highbrow analyses of the hipster, um, and it's just like this beautifully. I mean, he, he's just a he's a fantastic writer. He's this amazing writer, um, and the essay is just this very incisive uh, theorization of. Uh, the, the hipster as a, as a character type or the hipster as a certain kind of person who uses irony to uh, separate himself from the kind of official organs of recognition. Um, and so there's a kind of, you know, like maybe a contradiction there. And like, like this is, this is appearing in like the most important intellectual magazine in, in the United States, right? Like, so like the most highbrow people, are just like eating this up. They're they're totally fascinated by these marginal underground figures, uh, and so that that sort of um, that's what's interesting to me about his essay. I mean, that's cra- uh, that's crazy because you think that you know it, it would be like as the New York. I guess this is the you know the New Yorker will do stuff like this where they will put in something of just a really outlier. You know, let's let's do a thing about Snapchat. But even that seems like a little bit dated, you know, whereas his thing, it seems way more incisive than that. And, you know, you tie it in with uh, with Ralph Ellison. Can you can you go tie that together with us a little bit like with Ralph Ellison and Pynchon? Like I'd never looked at things this way at all, but they did overlap like yeah. in, in their time frame. Um, you know, what what is the connection there? Um. So. Okay, yeah. So, like, to go back to uh, Broyard, uh, so, okay, so the whole book is, is, is sort of in conversation with uh, w- Wallace's writing about irony. Yeah. And uh, I think Wallace uh, sort of articulates, like, this very common view that, like, you know, once upon a time in, like, the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, there was this kind of, like, uh, efflorescence of underground culture and irony had this uh, revolutionary function in its era. And like now it's okay. It's on network TV. It's on, on MTV. Now, now it's, now it's been co-opted. Now yeah. it, it doesn't have that kind of it's energy and force anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's been commodified. And so that story always seemed, you know, it's not that it, it's not that I was suspicious of it, but it, it, it didn't, it, it, it felt like a kind of well-rehearsed common view. And so when I started doing research on hipster culture, like what my eye was drawn to were these points of connection. So seeing the official culture like celebrate hipness and celebrate the underground and hold it up as this kind of 
uh, image and figure uh, of freedom. And so like that's that's part of like why I was drawn to that like Breuer essay because it's like the highest of the highbrow magazines celebrating uh you know the lowest of you know lowbrow vernacular uh popular culture yeah and saying no like these and then and then describing the hipster right like the the chapter that chapter is like the hipster is critic so it's like when Breuer is talking about the hipster all of a sudden the hipster is like doing the job of the critic. They're like, they're like more aware. They know more. They're, they're more sophisticated than the official critics. Uh, and so that's the thread that goes through all of them. I think like, so like Ellison is doing a lot of the same things in invisible man. Uh, like, so the character of the invisible man in that book, uh, really wakes up. He really opens his eyes. He's woke. Uh, he's woke. He's, uh, he becomes he's woke, woke, yeah, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. when he runs into this uh, character, Reinhardt, or he doesn't, in right. fact, directly encounter Reinhardt, but he sort of learns of Reinhardt's existence, and he accidentally starts impersonating Reinhardt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, 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 a, it's, it's somewhat similar to what, uh, for me, it's somewhat similar to what I see going on in the Broyard, where uh, this character whose great aspiration is to be a leader uh, in the black community isn't really able to do that until he goes underground. Uh, and it's it's through that process of going underground that he uh, achieves the most power in a certain way. Um, and then the same thing, I, I think, you know, like, uh, again, it's like Pynchon was very much interested in, in, in these same questions. Like he, he's younger, you right. know, he was younger than Ellison. Uh, but he, uh, you know, like he, he was friends with uh, Richard Farina uh, and, you know, was sort of would go down to New York and uh, go to like, you know, the five spot and like see Ornette Coleman playing, for example. Right. So, so, so there, there, there are all of these like biographical connections that you can kind of, hmm. you know, like suss out if you're a sort of, Pinch and obsessive, you right. know, like I, uh, which I used to be once way back. <laughs> I like that you mentioned that Pynchon was too young to be a beat, but too old to join newer youth movements. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. and you also tie Pynchon in with uh, pattern recognition. And I, I thought that passage was really interesting where, you know, you're talking about Oedipa Mas uh, mm-hmm. looking around for patterns. And I, I still see that with Pynchon's fans. You know, I mean, I should say, like, mm-hmm. the Wallace list, which the the email list I've been involved with now for, you know, almost 20 years. 20 years. 20 years um, is a spinoff of the Pynchon list. And it, it, I, I go through phases where I'm on and off that Pynchon list. Or mm-hmm. I know you should say Pynchon, but I say Pynchon. It's just... <laughs> my laziness to, um, <laughs> but, but there's, it seems like it attracts like that kind of literature attracts other people who are looking for patterns. And in reality, that can be really like annoying and like Alex Jones ish type conspiracy theory, people <laughs> who just like arguing about it, you know? And yeah. I, I don't see that so much with, you know, the later chapters where you get into like the believer people who seem really, empathetic and they're looking for like this heart voice and uh you know there's less of this paranoia there's less of this um just general sense that something is out to get you and 
I don't know if there's if that's just me, you know, looking at the world that way, or if there's uh, any truth to it. Because I think I think as a literature fan, there should be a lot of overlap between Wallace and Pinter and fans naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but I mean, and it's funny the way that your book is set up that, that they don't really overlap. Like you've got Wallace and that Believer chapter, but the the Pinter stuff is sort of it's an earlier time period. You know? Yeah, I mean. You know, Pynchon obviously is still writing, you know, like, I mean, Mason and Dixon comes out, right, like in 97. Right. uh, And then Against the Day comes out, I think, in 2005. Uh, But um, it does, I mean, so, I mean, that maybe that structure of the book also um, models my own trajectory in that I, you know, as an undergrad, I, I went to Cornell for undergrad and uh, was something of a pension fanatic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it was sort of inspiring uh, to know that he had gone to Cornell and uh, I was, you know, like um, uh, went. So like Slow Learner, his uh, pension's yeah. uh, story collection does not include uh, uh, Mercy and Mortality in, in Vienna, right? That, that short story. Uh, and... And I remember I, I went, I was, you know, this is like sort of the early days of, I mean, it's not really the early days of the internet, but it was sort of, you know, not, now you can like just, you know, Google it and find someone who scanned a PDF. But uh, I remember walking into the, the offices of Epoch Magazine, which had published the story. And I was basically looking for a copy of the story. And I was like, okay, well, do you, you know, is there any way that I can, you know, get access to this to make a photocopy of it. Mm. They were like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's one of you, right? <laughs> and they, they put out a photocopy of the story and just handed it to me. And I was like, okay, I'm, awesome. I'm a certain type. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's actually a, a pension dedicated podcast um, called Pension in Public. And they contacted us recently, actually, about about doing a cross episode together or something down the line. So, Oh, that's cool. That could be a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I should listen to that. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't heard. I mean, maybe I heard of that podcast. Mm-hmm. That's that's. I will add it to my my. <laughs> well, well, basically, all I do, yeah, to be listened to. <laughs> yeah, all, all I do is listen to podcasts now. I think and like read and teach and yeah, like, some time a little bit of writing, but mm-hmm. so. Well, there's a you know there's a lot of overlap with with fans, but I think that the the motivation for it is quite different and like i was saying with eggers where the motivation was i mean for me as a fan was like what is the next big thing you know and that pension only comes out with a book like every 10 years or used to and so the, the fans was sitting around for years just you know with twiddling their thumbs kind of waiting to hear what the media would say of like oh this guy is the next pension and there's all kinds of people who are compared to him um, for the wrong reasons, usually, because a true artist has no, like, real comparison. Um, But Wallace was one of those, right? And so Wallace was like, oh, this guy wrote a thousand-page book, like Gravity's Rainbow. It's like, no, it's really not. Um, But that's sort of what, you know, happens with Wallace fans, too, is that people looking around for, like, oh, this is the next big thing. This is, um, you know, if you like this, you will also like that. Um, but even that feels like we've reached a point now where, you know, it's 2017 
And it seems like there's less of that now. And maybe I'm totally wrong, but I, I, I don't even know what it's like. If you like Roxane Gay, you will like this other right. political well, I, writers. So, I mean, there was more of a sense of like uh, serendipity and, and word of mouth. And, and, and there was more excitement. I think there was more excitement when you, uh, you know, you discover writers almost by accident or right. mm-hmm. you like, you know, I remember buying infinite jest. I didn't read it for a few years, but I remember like bumping into it in the bookstore and it was just huge. You know, like, it was huge. And it, it was like physically, <laughs> huge. It was a physically huge book. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, Oh man, you know, I, I had just read gravity's rainbow. I had read Ulysses. I like <laughs> big books, you know? And I was like, this is a really physically big book and so you know like i was like okay i'm gonna i'm just gonna buy this and take a risk with this and it wasn't like some amazon recommendation algorithm that said well you know if you like gravity's rainbow people who bought (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. so it's like you know it's the same book it's the same book i might have discovered through their algorithm but like you know discovering it accidentally made it feel i think more special (laughs) <laughs> it's um, like these big these big encyclopedic novels have like a kind of gravitational pull as if they were like planets or something. The bigger oh, yeah. they are, the the stronger the gravitational pull. <laughs> yeah. You're just I, sucked I, in. Yeah, I, my my original uh concept for my dissertation was to to write about encyclopedic fiction. Mm. And uh, that was like, you know, the uh <laughs> the the conceptual frame for it was like, you know, really big yeah. difficult, you know, yeah. uh, stylistically yeah. heterogeneous books yeah. uh, as described by, like Edward Mendelssohn has this famous essay on called Gravity's Encyclopedia. Mm. Uh, and actually there are two versions of the essay, but like uh, basically he says, oh, you know, uh, there's this tradition of writing big books, uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel, um, you know, like uh, The Fairy Queen, Moby Dick. And gravity's rainbow now, you know. So, mm-hmm. so, so there's this kind of uh, yeah <laughs> uh, attempt, you know, like to to say that these are all the same thing. But I, I mean, right. I, Matt, I think you're right. Like they're 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 really not, you know. Like gravity's rainbow is very different. It's very different yeah. from infinite jest, yeah, or Lee, like the you, making of Americans. You know, it's like it's very different yeah. from anything. Hmm. Lee, do you remember uh, Lucy from the Paris conference we were at? She was one of the like organizers helpers. She, I think, was writing her dissertation on on the encyclopedic novel, and so she was working on Infinite Jest and the instructions by Adam Levin and and some other similar ones like that. Well, yeah. and and one thing you know, when Infinite Jest came out, there was some talk of it was the lar- the longest novel written in the nineties, and or published in the nineties, and it, it, Wallace immediately disputed that and said, no, 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 there was this other book. Uh, by Vikram Seth, A Suitable Boy, which yes. was like, it was like 1,350 pages or 1,400 mm. pages. So he was like, no, 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 I'm not even the longest. Like, don't, <laughs> don't put that on me. Uh, and, and yet I, I'm the same way. Like, as a shopper, I see myself like with Bolaño in 2666 or even mm. now with this damned – uh, bottom stream book. Bottom stream. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I'm just like I, I want it. I want to buy it, um, but it's not. It's got to be like fits this other demographic, which fits in with your thing of like the cool hunter. 
So early on, about an hour ago, you promised you'd tell us, like, define what is a cool hunter. <laughs> tell, tell, tell us about it. I realized, too, I, I just, like, apologize now. I haven't even asked a question. I've just, like, rambled <laughs> on, like, incoherently. I apologize, but... Um, no, not, not, not at all. Would I you mind? Yeah. Here's an actual question. Lee, could you define cool hunter for us? <laughs> well, uh... I, I wrote a whole chapter on it. Um, yeah, okay. So uh, cool hunting right, is also sometimes called trend spotting. And what it really is is a, like a type of marketer, type of marketing professional. And what the cool hunter does is collects information and performs analyses of – uh, what's cool and what's not, and then it gives that information to uh, large companies that then make strategic decisions about what to make and what to sell based on these analyses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, like if 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 a cool hunting and and they're like individual cool hunters uh, who are very kind of quirky and idiosyncratic, and then they're like more professionalized firms uh, that do this kind of work. Uh, one of the more famous or infamous cool hunters is this woman named Faith Popcorn, if you've ever heard of her. Uh, I, I and, and am she, not. I'm not cool. No, I wouldn't. I, I don't Clearly. know. I, I wouldn't recommend <laughs> looking her up necessarily. But uh, <laughs> Too late. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but, but the, the, so the point is that like, so this is technically what a cool hunter is. Uh, but then the really weird thing that I discovered was that there, there are like a bunch of novels that turn cool hunters into primary characters. So that, that William Gibson novel, Pattern Recognition that I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Regan. Yeah. Well, well, Jennifer Regan's book technically doesn't have a cool hunter, but it, it's, it's really interested in, in some of the same issues. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there's a book, uh, oh yeah, to talk about like that 9-11 moment, there's a book by Alex Shekhar called The Savage Girl. Yeah, you, uh, you made that really interesting to me. Like you were a cool hunter for me in that chapter where I was like, <laughs> I got to read this. You know, I wrote it down. I was like, Savage Girl, I'm going to get this. Lee's so meta. You sold it, man. <laughs> but I mean, wh- what is the story with that book? Um, well, I mean, there are a couple stories with the book. I mean, so the, the, the book itself is, is, uh, was published in, I think, October of 2001. And the New York Times review uh, of the book literally said something like, uh, this would have been a really interesting book uh, before uh, the 9-11 attacks, mm. but now it seems totally irrelevant to our world. You know, I mean, it was, it was, it was just one of these, like, very, I mean, for a young writer, right, for writing, writing his first novel, that had to suck, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the book itself is, 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 I think, like, it's really clearly indebted to DeLillo, uh, and it's, it's about this, like, small boutique firm of uh, uh, trend spotters, who live in this city that's, I think, vaguely uh, based on Austin. Oh, wow. Uh, mm. Yeah, and, and, and the, uh, it's all about these people whose job it is to commodify cool. 
Uh, so they'll they'll take like you know different trends, and then they'll they'll, they'll create these reports, and uh, they'll uh, basically suck the life out of anything that people really love uh, by commodifying it. And so that's uh, that's what the book is about. But then the book is also uh, like like I'll tell an embarrassing story in that like the way <laughs> I, I discovered the book. Uh, was so I, I was like, okay, I want to write a dissertation where I develop, you know, like when you're developing a dissertation, it's 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 good to come up with uh, some kind of you know neologisms or words yes, that, yes. that you own, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, well, a lot of people are using this term post irony. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a useful term for talking about um, what certain artists are doing. And so I'm going to write about this term. I'm going to I'm going to sort of you know make it my own. And I've learned from the history of that other big post word postmodernism that like you you know like that the, if 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 you had a hyphen right if it's like post hyphen irony mm-hmm. uh, you know that that hyphen is going to go away eventually. Mm-hmm. Like if enough people use a word like postmodernism, people used to hyphenate it all the time. Right. Uh, anyway, so. All of this is to say that I started Googling around for the word post-irony without the hyphen. Hmm. And uh, one of the only things that came up <laughs> was Alex J. Carr's book. Uh. <laughs> uh, so, like, the, the, the weird thing about that book is that the trend spotters uh, decide that they see a forthcoming megatrend, what they call a megatrend of post-irony. And like that's what they call it in the freaking book. <laughs> and the you know, it's, it's like it's like, oh man, who who is this guy? You know, like you you stole you stole my dissertation and you turned <laughs> it into a novel, and you did it like uh, you did it like six years before I you know like five years six years before I wrote my like prospectus. Uh, and so I was like, okay, I have to read this book. You know, fuck. You know, and so I, <laughs> I, I, I can curse. I don't know if I can curse. Or oh not. yeah, uh, okay. we're way past that. You know, go for it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I read the book and it it was really good, and I was like, oh, that's such a weird thing because I also just read this book by William Gibson mm-hmm. uh, about cool hunting. What is going on? Right. Like that's sort of the way I I write everything. I'm like, what is going on? Something is happening here. I need to write this down. It's, I need to figure this out. This, so <laughs> this is really illuminating for me, Lee, because when I was writing my thesis, doing research for it, the, this word post irony came up several times and sometimes it was hyphenated, sometimes not. And I had to make like, I probably had a conversation at some point with my supervisors about, do I hyphenate this word or not? So thank you for making this clear. And now I like understand why I had that problem. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. 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 I was preemptively like dehyphenating it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because in no bowl you have it without a hyphen. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, some people like it with the hyphen. I, I mean, in a way, I, I, you know, like, I committed to the word. I, I hate that the word has the uh, post prefix because mm. I feel like that's the most overused prefix <laughs> in academia. But uh, I. Had I had no choice, I, w- I was forced against my will to use it. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I feel like that comes up a lot in um, Wallace conferences and papers yeah. where people say, like, you know, what does postmodernism mean? And it's like after modernism. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> or what is you know what comes after postmodernism is like well clearly post postmodernism what comes after post irony is like well it's clearly post post irony and it is just such like phoning it in in some ways because yeah. you know you're in the middle of it it's really hard to describe like no one knows what our era will be called 50 years from now no one knows so yeah. you're you're just grasping around to say like how are we going to describe this moment and you know we we have limited tools and language to do that so mm-hmm. um yeah <laughs> this is completely off subject but I, something i wanted to uh ask you about is in the book you deal a little bit with uh amy hungerford Mm-hmm. And she, since the book has come out, has sort of even more forcefully sort of set herself up as kind of the great villain of Infinite Jest, <laughs> and, or the great the great naysayer. And, and, and well, a lot of people would love that title, but I, I'm willing to give it to her for now. Uh, <laughs> and that her argument in her latest book, which was reviewed in the LA Review of Books, which you have some connection with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, still do. That, that she basically argues that uh, Infinite Jest not only should not be part of the canon of contemporary American literature, but should just not be read. And she <laughs> just says she, in fact, hasn't read it. And I wonder if you, you know, would revise any of your statements or deal any more with that, or what, hmm. like, what's your take on? Uh, give me, give me some ang- Amy Hungerford talk. Um, Real talk. Yeah, well, this came up. I, I so I was on a, a panel at MLA uh, just ago, recently. Right? Yeah, yeah, a month ago, like yeah. Infinite Jest at twenty, and this, this came up there too. And it, it seems to be what everyone wants to talk about now. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I mean, I actually talked to her. I met Amy uh, like a, a few times, uh, and I actually met her after. I mean, I, I, I ran into her at a conference. We were on a panel together after she wrote, you know, after her book had come out, mm. and uh, after uh, Tom Leclerc's uh, piece on that on her on her on her book uh, came out as well. And uh, that, I, that was in full stop, I think. Right? Full yeah, it was stop. in full stop. Mm. Yeah, and in fact, I taught <laughs> I taught uh, the Pale King in my graduate class, and also taught her essay. Alongside Tom Leclerc, so I I, I feel like I've been talking about that essay. Sorry, for dude. Like multiple. No, it's <laughs> yeah. totally cool. I, yeah. uh, it's, I'm, it's not in any way to say that I don't want to talk about it. Uh, so I have many uh, like thoughts about it, but the truth is, I do not understand her argument. Like, and even after talking to her, I don't understand mm-hmm. what she's trying to say. Like, if what her argument is is that uh, she. Amy Hungerford should not feel guilty about not having read Infinite Jest and she shouldn't have to read it uh, to do her work. I, I feel like that is like a totally non-controversial argument, right? Like it's, it's totally fine. Y- yes, you cannot read everything in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to uh, do a monograph on contemporary literature, it's totally cool you know, not to, to, to read Infinite Jest. I think, you know, you're missing out if you do that. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you don't want to do that, that's fine. But that's, that's not really what her argument is, right? Like, she seems to want to make the argument that, like, uh, it is valid. It is a valid scholarly reason to uh, reject a book 
and to argue against the book on the basis of uh, a certain kind of reading of the biography of the author. Hmm. Uh, right. So like her main bank of evidence that Wallace is this like massive misogynist is the DT Max biography. Hmm. And I think it's a perfectly fair thing to say that like, you know, Wallace did all sorts of very bad things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have no reason, you know, you, you, you can say, okay, well, I don't know if I trust Mary Carr or not. I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to just accept it. You know, I, I, I have no uh, particular reason to like, have one view or the other about it, but um, to then make the inference that like, you know, you know, we, you know, no one or, you know, no person should read infinite jest from that seems odd to me. Let let, let me, let me, let me, let me put it, you know, that way. Um, Okay. So that's the first point I would make. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second point I would make is that this is not going to be convincing to anyone uh, who's actually invested in Wallace in any way. Right. And uh, her <laughs> argument seems to presume that the only reason people are invested in Wallace is because they've like been duped by little Brown's marketing. By the cool hunters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. that, 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 the, you know, like the only reason you might want to read infinite jest is out of this desire to like acquire uh, cultural capital. Right. Um, yeah. not because, you know, the book speaks to you and is interesting to you and like has these sorts of moments of, of, you know, great clarity and insight. Uh, like, so like if you're not going to read the book and you're not going to make an argument, you know, based on your reading of the book, uh, it's just like, it, it seems like a totally useless argument to me. Cause it's like not clear that it's going to, it's not going to dissuade anyone who's very invested in writing about Wallace (laughs) from writing about him. Mm -hmm. Well, Uh, and in some ways I don't want to give any more oxygen to this idea than it deserves because I'm with you on this. And I, I, I didn't want to like make this a focal point anymore other than to say, I think you are the expert on being able to, because especially (laughs) because you write about some of her other ideas in this book. Um, But I, I think if anyone can address it and help me like make sense of this, um, it's you. So I appreciate you. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate you doing that for me because yeah. I, I do think it's a little bizarre just to, to base a literary argument on why you shouldn't read something. Um, and to me that just doesn't hold up in the long term. but, uh, you know, I mean, to, and, and I'm also really contrarian. So if you tell me not to read something, like I want to go read it, you know, right. like, especially, and again, I realize this isn't a question so much as a comment and I feel really bad about that, but um, no, I mean, uh, it's a conversation. Do, like, yeah. do you have, do you have anything like, you know, any other past experience of stuff like that, where you think because there is an appeal to it. I mean, for me, I'm thinking of stuff that I read in in college or high school that was like Crime Think. Are you familiar with that Crime Think, which is like a collective and they publish these books and they were very like, oh, this is like, you know, the stuff they won't teach you in school. And I think that's part of like Amy Hungerford's argument is like infinite justice being taught now. And, you know, if it were not part of, like, this accepted canon of, like, this is one of the great books of the 90s, you know, she would have no argument. But it is. Right. And, you know, yeah. I, I think 
that that is in a way that is going to work out better for infinite jest than for Amy Hungerford. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I, I have a longer, uh, engagement, uh, with her essay. So I, I have a piece that I've submitted to, uh, do you know Ralph Clare? Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, we know, we know yeah. Ralph. Yeah. Of course you know Ralph. Yeah. yeah. No. So he has a, he's working on the Cambridge companion to, to David Foster Wallace. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have a chapter, in that, uh, like I, t- I was tweeting about it. Actually, uh, I was saying, okay, let's. I just want to collect all the places that Infinite Jest and Wallace have, have influenced. Uh, and so I was like collecting sort of ideas for a while on Twitter about that. Uh, but the essay turned into something different. It, it, it turned into like uh, the title is uh, David Foster Wallace's Bad Influence. And it's sort of thinking about. Like there are a lot of people who have like very negative responses to Wallace mm-hmm. and, and have had negative responses to Wallace, you know, from the very beginning. Right. So like, I think people retroactively uh, construct a story in which, you know, you know, infinite just comes out or, or like Wallace's fiction comes out and like everyone is just like loves him instantly and is celebrating him. And that's not at all what it was like as, as you know, far as I can reconstruct it. I mean, well, like in fact, Egger, Egger's first review of it was pretty negative. It was very negative. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and then like the New York times, mm-hmm. uh, ran kind of mixed, mixed reviews, uh, of it. And, and so like, I, I, I think, and so for me, okay. So like, so I have this essay that like kind of engages with, with, with hunger for like greater length. And, and I can, you know, like talk about that. But like, uh, what I really want to say is that like, um, I came to Wallace as a graduate student before very many people had any interest in writing about him. And uh, one of the things that I, you know, found appealing about writing about him was that, you know, I could do some kind of like preliminary primary work on him, right. that I could like just like, you know, not be the hundredth person to write about Wallace, but I could be the fifth or the sixth person to write about this text of Wallace's. Uh, and so that, that's sort of, you know, like where I'm coming from in all this. And so uh, to, you know, like, you know, there was no DT Max biography for me to read. Uh, you know, there was no sense of like who Wallace was mm-hmm. uh, beyond like some very, you know, beyond what he said about himself in his interviews. And I mean, like we now know that, he was not entirely honest in his interviews. Yeah, right. Uh, and so it, it, it's kind of like to sort of, you know, read someone saying, well, I, I, read, I read Wallace's, you know, bio, and I have determined I don't need to read him. Just sort of like, it, it leaves me cold. I'm like, yeah. okay, <laughs> it's fine. It's a bit ad hominem, right? <laughs> like if that's your only, you know, the character of this person is the only reason to not read this book. Lee, were you saying you read it before it was cool? <laughs> uh, I, I'm just saying I read it before I was cool. I took, you know, uh, no, I, but I, what, what was the first monograph on Wallace? Was it was it Boswell's Understanding David Foster yeah. Wallace in 2009? Yeah. Okay, no, 2003. Yeah. That came out in 2003. 2003. Uh, it was released in 2009. Yeah. And S- oh, okay. S- Stephen Byrne um, had that Reader's Guide to Infinite Jest in 2001. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, but 
I mean, there's like a bit less scholarly, I suppose, in a way. Well, there was, I mean, there was scholarship about him, you know, in yeah. the Review of Contemporary Fiction had an uh, issue devoted to, or, you know, partly devoted to him mm-hmm. um, in the 90s. So, I mean, I think he was accepted, but you're right. It was very controversial in that there were some people who hate him. Brett Easton Ellis, of course, set himself up to <laughs> other be the other arch villain. Yeah. Of uh, Infinite Jest. And, and now Mary Carr, in some ways, you know, Mary Carr has come out and said, like, stop asking me about Wallace. I don't want to talk about him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, she I, said I, to I, Lena Dunham that, like, I mean, there's an element to that question that, that assumes that, like, her greatest contribution to literature is that she, quote, fuck David Foster Wallace a couple of times. And... I mean, I can I can kind of see her point if that if that is you know the fascination with her that people have. I mean, I could see that as being fairly dehumanizing, right? Yeah, I mean, like this is a. I talk a little bit about this in the essay at greater length. I mean, mm-hmm. like, uh, like I think her poems about Wallace's suicide mm-hmm. are kind of reflect that same feeling, and then uh, you get it a little bit in like. Uh, Karen Green's like bow down as mm. well, right? Like there, there's sort of these, there is that moment in that, in that poem where people are emailing her as if they know her right. and uh, they, you know, like only know her through their kind of impressions about her husband, her, you know, her ex, you know, her dead husband. And that's just, you know, it's, it's super frustrating. It's like, you know, like, she's an artist in her own right. She's doing her own thing. And, mm-hmm. and so it, it's kind of, it's, it's, I can totally understand the frustration yeah. when this like media machine kind of starts moving and, you know, like assimilating you and, and framing you yeah. uh, in a ways that you would not prefer to be framed yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, like I can understand too, that like the perspective, like say of, you know, I, you know, from I'm sure, like, not to keep bringing bring this back to Hungerford's essay, but like, you know, uh, if you're a scholar who like didn't have any interest in Wallace, and all of a sudden, you know, the culture is telling you from seven different directions, you know, you're a terrible person if you don't read this thousand-page novel immediately. <laughs> uh, you might your impulse might be to say, you know, like, you know, fuck you, culture. I have something better to do with my time. <laughs> yeah. So like, I don't, again, I don't begrudge anyone who doesn't, you know, like want to do this. Um, and I feel like myself too, like, um, it would be very easy for me now at this point in my career to like do nothing other than write about Wallace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I do not want to do that. Like, <laughs> that is not the direction I want to go in. And so, um, you have like tenure, not, right? Do you have tenure? Uh, I'm yeah. up for tenure now. <laughs> so wait, wait till you get tenure and then just write about Wallace all the time. <laughs> but I don't want to do that. Like, <laughs> I'm giving yeah, like, you shit, man. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, That's good. I mean, but I, I will say, like, um, I mean, not that anyone cares, but like, I see myself very much opposed to that mindset, and that I have nothing invested in this game other than a pure like belief that his work should be read 50 years from now or a hundred years from now. And I think that's a very fickle thing. And that, you know, literary immortality is never guaranteed to anyone another year. And I think the people who have maintained it have uh, champions. 
And yeah. they, you know, you said something earlier about maybe when we were talking about Briard about there is numerous other people who have written about the same subjects that are forgotten and written about yeah. it really well. They wrote very, mm -hmm. very poetically and they are forgotten and they are out of print and they will probably not be resurrected. And I think that there needs to be some kind of cohesion around certain writers that, you know, builds them up and says, no, we're going to, you know, maintain this in a weird way. And like the fact that I found myself even mildly associated with Wallace and that is bizarre and that I read him in the same way that you did. And, you know, as someone is like, oh, it's a big book that came out. I like reading big books. And it's like <laughs> now, you know, we're coming up on, you know, eight, nine, ten years since he died. And to me, that's just a very uh, – it's an interesting thing to watch evolve. But I, I think that there will be much more written about um, Wallace. Even the 50th person will still find enough appeal about it to, you know, write another dissertation or, or a monograph or something. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not ending with a question here. Um, <laughs> I, I – Dave, save me here. Give me a, yeah, okay. throw, throw well, a question at Lee here. Well, I would love to kind of get into some of the particulars of chapter three, Lee, how to be a believer, which is really like the chapter in cool characters that really drills down into Wallace specifically other than the intro. So like I mentioned before, you, you sort of frame the chapter with uh, the question of belief and, and as sort of an example, a literary example of that being the Left Behind series, uh, Tim LaHaye and all those, uh, you know, sort of extremist right-wing evangelicals in the U.S. And I kind of want to just sort of like get a bit of uh, a walkthrough from you on, on the Wallace stuff in, in the Believer chapter. And maybe we can talk about some of the, the particular ideas. Sure. That sounds great. If it's not too much of like a spoiler for people who are interested in picking this book up. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, 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 the chapters are very long, so I, I think we probably only like <laughs> yeah, totally. skim the surface here. Yeah. Well, the stuff about the new sincerity that's in there, too. I mean, I, you know, that was a big deal in 2009-ish, mm -hmm. you know, after Wallace died and Adam, yeah. Kelly, Adam Kelly wrote the thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, like, you know, there seems to be almost like a backlash to that and then like a backlash to the backlash and... You know, people still <laughs> cite that essay a lot. Like, how do you think, like, the idea of the new sincerity has evolved? Um, well, you know, like, I, I, I think it's uh, still around. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, like, Adam's, uh, you know, Adam's a friend. And, you know, I, I think his scholarship is great. And uh, I think, you know, it's, it's, it, there, it's important to, like, di differentiate between... Uh, the kind of discussion of the new sincerity that was happening maybe more in like pop culture right. on like, uh, like th th there's a certain, there's a certain flash of literary blogging culture uh, that I feel like has gone away with the rise of social media. So, I mean, it's still around to some degree, but like uh, HTML, HTML giant, 3am magazine, uh, these sorts of venues like you, you could get essays on, you know, you know, Taolin and the New Sincerity, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 these were essays that were written by artists uh, and and sort of you know practicing poets and novelists uh, for other uh, 
poets and novelists for the most part. Um, and so that that's sort of one version of the new sincerity. Uh, and then I think what Adam is doing is more uh, kind of philosophically grounded, right? So he, uh, you know, he goes back to like Lionel Trilling and, and, and Lionel Trilling's writing about sincerity. Uh, and he wants to sort of think about this problem of uh, performativity, right? Like this sort of the problem of uh, like, you know, aligning your beliefs with uh, the way that you are in the world. And so, so I, I, I think that's what like Adam is doing. Um, and it's, it's somewhat similar to what I'm interested in. I'm sort of approaching the same issues uh, from a kind of a more oblique angle. Um, and I mean, I think the two are interrelated in some ways yeah. and that, you know, in, in contemporary culture, you have musicians or you have visual artists or writers who are really interested in this idea of empathy with the reader or the viewer, yeah. the viewer and they want to be uh, sincere and authentic rather than being this sort of removed, you know, hipster, ironic pose. Right. Right. Uh, but I, I'm just curious, like, is that really like, am I talking out of my ass from something from 12 years ago or is, <laughs> or is that really like, is that still the struggle? And like, I don't know. You know I mean? We talked with some, you know, a musician recently and I felt like that guy from Parquet Courts is he's on that page and like can relate to this idea of like, mm. no, that's what artists are still like that's still the gold standard is like trying to be sincere and maybe that's just too mainstream though. And I'm not, I'm like I say, I'm out of it. So I'm asking you. <laughs> like, um, I mean, I, I, I still think it's a living practice. I, I, I think it's sort of the form that it's taken is different uh, than uh, it took, you know, like there's there, okay. So, so let's, let's use some concrete examples, right? Like there's, there's a definite gap or difference between um, like a heartbreaking work of staggering genius and uh, like a novel like uh, Ben Lerner's 1004 or uh, Sheila Hetty's How Should a Person Be? Right, like the, right. the 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 vibe of those books is like very different. But I think you can make a strong case that that they're they have many of the same kinds of concerns, right? So like 1004 is a book that's very much obsessed with uh, how to tell a sincere story about, you know, your own life uh, and how to tell your, your own story in a world where, you know, you are uh, commodifying yourself uh, to get onto the pages of the New Yorker or where, uh, you know, like your you know, your whole life becomes material uh, at the same time that you're living your life. And so, you know, you, you talked about before, uh, Matt, you talked about the, uh, the kind of the irritation you felt at uh, like Andy Warhol's A, yeah. right? Like the fact that he had just recorded his, his life and, and just had someone transcribed it and, and, and like called it a novel. But like, this is very much the same thing that like, like Sheila Hetty does in that novel, right? Like she records conversations with her friends. She basically transcribes and, and kind of shapes them uh, into scenes uh, in her novel. 
Um, and so I, I think I think the same, you know, the same questions are being explored that that you find in like that early two thousands fiction, but like maybe in like a, a different way now. Now you know, like people are on social media or they're you know wielding their iPhones. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I like Sheila Hetty's book a lot, actually. Yeah. And I don't know how it teaches for you, but uh, I, I like that book a lot. And I think 1004 is interesting in that it's a smarter, kind of uh, more reflective, in-depth idea of the same thing, where he traces a lot of it back to Walt Whitman in Song of Myself. And it kind of takes that as license to say, you know what, it's going to be okay for me to write about myself because kind of because Walt Whitman did it. <laughs> and, and I, I, I find that, I guess, in a way more, I don't know, more literary or more permissive in a way that, you know, like Tao Lin is not for me. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I don't know that Wallace fits into that discussion very well because his ideas of, um, storytelling were very different and were very much like i i think wanted to be what like dave eggers wanted to be was like i'm trying to break your heart like i'm going to write something Mm -hmm. that is going to connect with you and it's very intentional but wallace didn't start out that way i mean i see that as an evolution in his work right so he i to me he doesn't get to that point until infinite jest and and i think that's the reason why a lot of his earlier stuff is not as uh, critically dealt with as Infinite Jest and afterwards. So I, I'm, I mean, I'm there. And I mean, not to say that you deal with that in your book so much as that you deal with like this ethos of the believer and that he, what, you know, maybe this is a question for you. What does Wallace believe in? Uh, well, that's, that's a good, that's a great question. I mean, like the, I think the place I end up in the chapter is to say that Wallace couldn't figure out an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would say, speak a lot about wanting to affirm like old verities and cliches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you get down to it, the kind of belief he offers up is somewhat like empty like mm. it, it's not clear what you're supposed to believe in, right? Like, right. You're, like even like in something as widely beloved as uh, like this is water, right? Like the the, the Kenyan address. Yeah. Uh, you get to the end of that, and you're like, okay, well, the thing you should, you know, the thing you should do is make a choice to see the world as like full of life and and you know on fire and in, mm-hmm. in a good sense and uh you know like, like worship some kind of god maybe yeah worship some kind of god <laughs> like pick doesn't one matter. doesn't matter which one doesn't matter which one <laughs> and so you, you sort of end up in this place where it's like well you know you could end up worshiping some pretty bad gods sure. like i mean you know there, there there's some <laughs> dark directions you could take that right. um but like i think wallace was so convinced that like there was this crisis of belief that like you couldn't believe in if you you know the problem wasn't that people believed the wrong things it's that they couldn't believe in anything at all right um, and so so like let's at least try and get back to that point mm-hmm. where belief is possible again and then you know yeah. we can let religious philosophers figure out you know well it's what that, to believe that, in. <laughs> it's that like it, it's that icky moment for me it's an icky moment in his essay on John McCain 
the Rolling Stone essay where yeah. he's like, well, here I am, uh, and I think this guy's politics are just abysmal. They're terrible. They're so bad. And yet I, I, I like something about this guy. Yeah. I like that he, he was definitely tortured Mm-hmm. And that means that, like, there's some... He's like a true American kind of... He's like a true American. I can believe yeah. in it. And it's yeah. like, well, you know, uh, that has its limitations. <laughs> right. right. Well, and I thought yeah. you were going to say that, you know, the thing that he brings it back to a lot is a belief in writing or literature. And, you know, you make this point that he uh, uses communication, right? The ability for literature to sort of jump over the wall of the self into someone else's self. And that's sort of, that's sort of the goal or the belief of infinite jest, right? Cause you could make the same yeah. thing. Like what is the point of, of this is water? It's like, I don't know, keep an open mind. Well, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's really tough to define But same with infinite jest. Like what's the point It's like, don't be addicted to things or like, don't, you <laughs> yeah. know, like yeah. just, just try to communicate to people. Like the, the yeah. point is really vague there. But I think there is a lot, you know, especially with Hal and his father and like the Wraith and Gately and like it's communicating across these big, you know, leaps and bounds and just how difficult that is, which is really sad in a way. Like, you know, I've been talking to you for like an hour and a half now. Like, is that is it really that hard? You know, like, (laughs) I mean, this is a good like, yeah, yeah. it is hard and it's not hard, you know, like, uh. You know, part of the joke with uh, Skype is, you know, like, right, that, you know, we're, you know, engaging in, uh, you know, video telephony. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, but like, you know, we, in fact, don't have the problems that Wallace imagined we might develop with, you know, video phones. Uh, And, uh, like, okay, so, like, I write about Wallace because, like, I love his fiction, right? Like, sentence after sentence, I love what he puts on the page. Mm -hmm. But uh, I find the analysis of the world that he offers in Infinite just kind of confusing sometimes because I think he wants to take the model of addiction and like generalize it, right? Like he wants the addict to be like this figure for all people under post-modernity, if you want to call it that. Mm. And I don't, fully buy that you know like, like he addicted I, I, every man figure. yeah like every man is addicted to something mm-hmm. you know and it's like no that's that doesn't seem right to me right <laughs> like i don't fully buy that but mm. uh you know what you end up with it's like infinite jest the film infinite jest and i talk about this in my chapter the film infinite jest in the novel infinite jest mm-hmm. is very peculiar because you don't know anything about it you know, you like you, you get only very fleeting views of what's in the film itself. And yeah. uh uh like James's intention is to communicate with his son, uh, but like what does he want to say? Mm-hmm. Like what's the content of that communication? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's even an end goal, it's just like to simply converse, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're like, yeah. well, where does that ultimately get us? I don't know. I guess yeah. you're having feelings. Sort of the other. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think this kind of gets to to claim that you make uh, in the context of Wallace's suicide that you say that his suicide is an emblem of the failure of literature to solve certain kinds of problems. And it's really easy for us in like Wallace scholarship to talk about like Wallace's views on what the role of fiction is, you know, to make us less lonely and to give us 
imaginative access to other selves and all that kind of good stuff, which is, which is yeah. interesting and good. But like, is that enough? Is that, is that, <laughs> does something greater have to, have to come after that? In a way, and I think I think what you're talking about with belief and the the concept of a believer is is sort of a an extension of that. Would you say that's some, somewhat fair to say that the concept of a believer is an extension of like uh, some kind of sense of community, maybe that we get through literature yeah. or elsewhere, like has to bring us or might bring us to like uh, a, a, something larger than ourselves, and maybe that is some kind of religious belief or philosophical belief or whatever, you know. Yeah, I mean, right. So I guess what I would say is that, like, the project, like Wallace's project, bears some similarity to the project of, like, McSweeney's. Right. But, like, the approaches are really different. So, like, I think Wallace wanted to figure out, like, what could literature itself do Mm -hmm. to, like, solve these problems? Or not solve these problems, but, like, do some kind of end run around the barriers that make it hard to, uh, you know, like uh, communicate with other people or to overcome this kind of anhedonic sense mm-hmm. of like kind of, uh, I don't know, like numbness that Hal seems to suffer from. Right. Um, and it does seem to me that like uh, that just, he can't successfully get through to the other side in infinite jest. You don't see any kinds of examples. You, you get Don Gately at his bottom mm-hmm. uh, and you get to see him doing his thing at, you know, uh, at Ennett house afterwards. Uh, but you don't know how to, you don't quite see him getting there. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't, I don't, I mean like, you know, you, you get descriptions of, of what it's like to, you know, right. To, he, to go, you know, on your knees and, and you know, every AM and, and pray to a God you don't believe in. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, it's like there's this gap. Uh, it's as if, like, Wallace is trying to, like, just imaginatively will himself to the other side of this gap between the bottom and, and healthy living. Right. Um, and I think McSweeney's does it, like, in a different way or did it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And it became much more about, like, the institution. Right. It became much more about, like, you know, walking through that, uh, you know, like uh, the San Francisco tutoring center mm-hmm. also doubled as a, a pirate supply shop. Yeah. Right. And so there, there's like this kind of quirky, <laughs> uh, welcoming, community oriented aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, was doing that kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in maybe one of the more favorable um, assessments of Dreyfus and Kelly's All Things Shining and its, uh, its take on Wallace and, and This Is Water. You sort of agree with them that Wallace's worldview is kind of a radical atheism or something like that. Could you sort of un- unpack what you mean by that a little bit more? But maybe like the, what Wallace is really advocating in terms of belief is maybe some kind of very weak or fideistic, uh, that he's really not offering any kind of like serious belief system yeah yeah okay so um so i'm actually this is a lengthy footnote (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what an important footnote where you know it's like it's like one of the things that i had to do to make this you know this this whole book like come in at the right length is to like (laughs) take the more esoteric 
mm-hmm. scholarly debates and hide them in the notes. And so like what ends up happening is like the, the notes become very, very long here. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah. So like I'm arguing against the, if I'm recalling now, I'm arguing against the Dreyfus and Kelly argument. Uh, right. Like they, they, they're like great. If I'm remembering right, like Dreyfus and Kelly are, uh, claim that Wallace has this like Nietzschean view. Yeah, like he's totally. Will. Yeah, he's a total nihilist, and like this is water gets a, a, a pretty favorable um, review in in all these public discourses. But really, he's just yeah, he's Nietzschean. He's a nihilist, um, and so it's it seems to me from what I understand there that you kind of agree with their assessment that he like they're right to call him an atheist. I think they are right to call him an atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they have this incorrect view of Wallace's view of the will. Right. Uh, I think uh, they think that because Wallace is indeed, I think, correctly described as an atheist, uh, this means that uh, he believes that, like, you know, like when you're in that supermarket, you know, checkout line, you can just will yourself to believe anything you want. <laughs> and right, transcendentalism like the, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way they characterize it. If I'm remembering in their book and, uh, I am arguing that it's, it's sort of, you know, more complicated than that. Like I, I, I kind of lean on these sort of, um, there's a whole theorization of like in, in the introduction about like, you know, spiritual practices and, ethos and other things like that where I'm saying like, well, Wallace is, you know, sort of saying, okay, we have like some control over what we do and what we think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also like resisting this effort to like recruit Wallace. In, you know, I use like very religiously loaded language in the chapter, yeah, yeah, uh, which is, you know, uh, dangerous, I think. And then enhancing the danger, I, I start with the Left Behind series. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Enhancing the danger. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I'm maximizing the danger maybe Uh by doing that. But like, I do ultimately want to land on on the claim that Wallace is not, he's not talking to us about religion. He's not uh, saying, well, you may not believe in God, Don Gately, Mm -hmm. but God believes in you, (laughs) right? Like he's, he's not saying that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, because it's too uncool. Like you also, right. <laughs> I mean, he also thinks. I think he's aware. Like, if you want anyone to take you seriously, you can't say those things, uh, and and be considered like a serious literary writer. And and I think he is really good at marking the line between, you know, portraying an individual who is you know, alienated from society without using the language of contemporary religion. But mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, for me, I read this essay by this guy, um, Michael O'Connell, mm-hmm. who, who really argued that you could read a lot of his work as this unique brand of like Christian existentialism. And yeah. then that sort of changed my mind. I think he actually cites your essay from the legacy book in there called No Bull, right? It was yes. called No Bull. Yeah, I believe he does. Which, yeah. Which I think, um, you know, for me that that is a very interesting way, especially if you're looking at some stuff in the Pale King. That's you know the good people section about abortion and stuff. And yeah. I, I think you can make an argument that that he is very much a Christian writer, in the same way that AA is a Christian subsect. Uh, and and so I think, 
you know, he never comes out and says, oh, I am this or I am that. And so yeah, I think it's, you know, it's left up to us to say, you know, biographically to me, it's less interesting than what he represents in the literature, uh, of right. course. But I, I, I think that that isn't, is still such an interesting debate because he didn't say anything. You know, it's not as explicit. If it was explicit, like Flannery O'Connor or something, that would mm-hmm. be like, well, there'd just be books about it, and it wouldn't be this debate. You know, that we could we could chat about. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lee, yeah. I'm curious to hear of like your take on some of the scholarship that that explores like the religious or theological, you know, um, content in Wallace's writing. Like my own thesis does that. Michael O'Connell. Uh, we yeah. talked to you know Christian Pikarski, who did a, a his whole dissertation on Wallace and Buddhism. Right, um, right. You know, like if Wallace, if you're saying that Wallace can't accept a religious response to to a fallen world that he wants to invent sort of like a new secular belief with religious vocabulary, but emptied of any real specific context. I'm quoting you from page 170. Yeah. Uh, like how, how do you, what do you make of those kind of scholarly addresses of religion in, in Wallace? Um, I mean, I, it depends on the specific like yeah, uh, yeah. claim that's being made. Yeah. Um, like you, you did use the word recruiting and I think that there's a huge danger in trying to like recruit Wallace as, you know, affirming the tenets or, or, or trying to push a certain religion yeah. and yeah. use walls to prove that. Um, right. Mm. I mean, I, I guess there's a certain kind of, um, I'm resistant to uh, maybe a, a kind of scholarship that says, okay, well, here's, you know, let me, let me articulate like this belief system, a, you know, mm. Buddhism on the one hand, and then B, let me show how these ideas can be found in the text of Wallace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because you, you, can, you can do that, and I think you can make valid arguments about the way that, like, Wallace incorporates certain ideas uh, into his text. But the question for me is then, like, what's, like, what's Wallace's purpose? Like, what can we infer about his purpose? Mm-hmm. Is he, you know, like, you know, ultimately... Wallace is either, uh, you know, he, 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 he's either invested in a certain religious tradition or he's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the question becomes for me, like, like it, it just doesn't seem to me like his answer is that you should believe a particular uh, kind of religious faith because he, right. he's so meticulous about making sure like that he's saying you don't need to do that. He's spe- he's, be- he's like being very specific and saying uh, like even, even in the pale King, right? Like even in um, the uh, uh, like Dean Lane mm-hmm. and other, you know, overtly Christian themed uh, elements of, of, of that novel, uh, you know, they represent one strand of that novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so totally. I feel like Wallace's ambition is not just within a particular faith tradition, but then, you know, he wants to sort of make some kind of generalization about um, contemporary life. Uh, and so in order to do that, um, I'm sort of, you know, I came to the conclusion when I was doing my research that he was not, uh, it was important to him like that it it, it be, devoid of like that religious terms be separated from 
uh, their theological content. Right, yeah. If that, if, if, I, that's sort of a rambling answer, but does, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah that's good. Cool. Thanks for thanks for unpacking that. And you can push back too again if you're like, no, you're wrong. Here's why. <laughs> like, I'm totally open to like. No, that's fine. I, like, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not trying to argue anything. I'm just curious to to explore like the extension of of some of the the stuff you talk about in this chapter, which I found yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Cool. Lee, do you have any any kind of final thoughts on on Wallace about uh, last things you want to say about your book here? Uh, things that. Maybe you're excited about, you know, in the next coming year or so in terms of Wallace studies or where you see the field going. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts about it. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I feel like Wallace studies as a discipline, you know, if, if you want to call it that, like is really coming into its own now. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there were a lot of precursors, but like there are just a bunch of developments now. Uh, uh, the uh, like Stephen Burns uh, series out of uh, Bloomsbury, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, I'm, I'm excited to uh, to read uh, is it Lucas Thompson's book, mm-hmm. yep. Global Wallace. We have it. Uh, you have it. Oh, yeah. have you read it? Oh yeah. It's yeah. it's tons of connections to other writers. We'll have Lucas on soon. Yeah, um, it still hasn't got to me though. I still, I'm still. Uh, it's yeah. I mean that that's an interesting series. I I don't know what's next yeah. in that series, but it's going to be interesting yeah, to see it. I don't know. I mean, like you you have like all these monographs. I mean, like yeah. uh, Claire, Claire Hayes Brady obviously was on your show. Uh, yeah, Dave Herring. Yeah. Uh, you talked, I think, to Jeff, Jeff Seavers. We, we, haven't, Jeff Seavers. we haven't had him on yet, but Seavers is coming up yet. We had him for 10 minutes at the conference, one of those yeah. short interviews. But yeah, we just got his monograph in the mail this week. So we're gearing up to talk to him pretty soon, too. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a good, that's a really good book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I feel like, you know, like uh, the field as a field is like consolidating itself. There, there sort of is like a canon- canonical like stratum of <laughs> arguments now to like work with and uh you know argue against and and to sort of like uh sort of add to with like a focus on like new texts i mean like uh I, you know obviously there's like there's always going to be more to say about infinite jest like you'll you'll never run out of things to say about infinite jest but like uh, it would be great to see scholarship on like you know broom uh to see maybe I mean, even like Girl with Curious Hair, I feel like has like almost no one has talked about Girl with Curious Hair. No, no I, I think like Dave Herring talks about it and like, you know, like other people talk about it in the context of these career wide surveys. But hmm. um, I mean, though, you know, the, those are interesting stories and I, I think they yeah. deserve. I mean, I don't, well, I don't, you know, I don't think Westward is very good, but, you know, <laughs> otherwise. I think there's the something of, the of Westward, though, that is him trying to write Infinite Jest. And I mean, that's what, yeah. well, mm-hmm. that's what's interesting about it to me is that yeah. it's like a failed attempt at Infinite Jest because he does try. And I think there are, you know, as a bridge between his, his earlier self and his later self, that's it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and, and Boswell uh, makes that point. I mean, I'm taking this from Boswell. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think Boswell's right. I mean, like, uh, so I, I I think there, there there's just like a lot. There's a lot of new stuff uh, to be done, and I think the archives at the Ransom Center. I mean, Dave, uh, right? Dave Herring did a great job 
kind of reconstructing the publishing history of uh, of the Pale King. But like you, you know, you go to those archives, and uh, you, it's incredible. Like I took, I took hundreds of digital photos right. of, of of you know uh, elements of like you know Infinite Jest and and, and the Pale King. Um, Lee and I were in and, there together. You spent like a, yeah. what a month there? How long? Did oh we have? wow. Yeah. It was great. It's so great. Yeah. (laughs) But like, you know, and I look at these digital photos and Wallace's handwriting is like so small. It's impossible. Like you can't read it in the digital (laughs) photos. It was like, yeah. yeah. Uh, Am I I correctly remembering Lee that at your talk at Paris about the concept of turd nagels (laughs) that you had, that you showed some of these images? Yeah. I, (laughs) I, uh, I, discovered that uh these like there are these passing references to turd nagels in the pale king and uh, yeah. uh, it turns out that turd nagels are <laughs> much more significant than you would think <laughs> should have done a whole show on turd nagels damn it <laughs> missed opportunity oh, yeah <laughs> can well, we have you back on just to talk turd nagels i you yeah. i can i can talk for <laughs> an hour nagels. about turd nagels <laughs> it, they're they're seriously like you know I uh, think well, we sh- I think I talked to you about this like after your talk at Paris Lee, but I think like did Beavis and Butthead use that term? Uh, uh, not that I know of. There's got to be some like pop culture because I think my friends and I w- used to say that or like vari- variations on that back when we were you know like in eighth grade and skate punks and all that. Well, it is a term that appears in uh, Don DeLillo's novel Players. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then uh, it was also. The name of one of Wallace's dogs, yes. and it was also his email address was Turdnagel. Oh, yes. really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so again, like I could talk for an hour about Turdnagels, but <laughs> I, I'll spare you. <laughs> next time, next time, next, yeah. t- next time we'll get the full hour. <laughs> right. Awesome, Lee. Well, man, thank you so much for a very rich, uh, almost two hours of conversation about your book and, and other related items it's been fantastic talking to you and i just want to thank you for your book and for all your contributions to to wallace scholarship you're you've been a a pillar of the community and so it's great to finally get you on and talk to you oh thank you for having me this was this was great (laughs) awesome man (laughs) fantastic um any any final thoughts matt on your end um no i just want to um thank everyone who's emailed us in the past month or so we've had some people write into us and even the people I haven't responded to yet, uh, I appreciate reading those. So if you have any questions for us, you can email us uh, at concavityshow at gmail.com. We like getting those. Or on Twitter, right. at, at concavityshow. Lee, do you want to throw your um, Twitter handle out there? What is it? Yeah, it's uh, at L Constan. Uh, so it's L-K-O-N-S-T-A-N. Yep. And nice. I also have a website, LeeConstantino.com, that has just links to stuff that I've written. Cool. All your articles and CV and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Awesome, man. That's great. Is, uh, is yeah, that ahead, also Matt. on uh, academia.edu? Do you have a profile in there? Uh, I do have an academia.edu profile. Okay. So nice. if And if, if you want PDFs of my articles, you can email me and I, I'll, I'll – 
save save you a few bucks <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. awesome that's great great well we'll link to all those in our in our show notes so people uh people can click those um we also want to mention too speaking of uh of women and infinite jest was it was a topic we were on about an hour ago uh when we were talking about amy hungerford and some of her criticisms of the book um there is another online community group read of infinite jest starting on january 30th uh tomorrow called sacred jest uh, you can check out the website sacredjest.org or on Twitter they're at sacredjest, uh, and we've been in touch a little bit with uh, with some of the guides for that, and it's and it's another sort of similar to you know poor York summer or infinite winter, infinite summer, and the guides are four females, uh, so our friend Shazia Hafiz from Vancouver. Johannes Schwartz, Emily Hoffman, and Amari Thomas. So uh, if you haven't read Infinite Jest, you want to read Infinite Jest again. You want to read Infinite Jest specifically in the context of talking about it as sort of a religious text. That seems to be the vibe that they're going for with Sacred Jest. So continuing on some of the stuff that we were just talking about with Lee, there's a place where you can go engage with it. So check that out. do the video phony portion yeah. of the thing yeah that makes sense some bandwidth uh, just in honor of infinite jest and that's it <laughs> unless we all have our masks ready to go <laughs> you know on the wall hook <laughs> bust them out yeah my 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 mask is at the dry cleaners so. oh <laughs>